Okay, let's pray, and let's open up God's Word this morning. Thank you, Father, for your great love for us in Christ, and that nothing, no trial, no difficulty, no problem, not even death, can separate those who trust Christ from your love. Oh, let us be rooted and grounded in your love, I pray. And Lord, I ask that as we open up your word, this is a tough passage this morning, and I pray that you would give me clarity of mind and heart, and that you'd give each of us diligence in really thinking hard about what you teach us in this passage, and that we would be deeply strengthened and encouraged by it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 8. And if you need a Bible, we want to bring one to you so you can follow along as we study this passage. We're passionate about studying the Bible, so raise your hand. We'll bring one to you this morning that you can use. We love the Bible here at Mercy Hill Church. We want to teach the Bible and walk through the Bible and learn the Bible. And so that's why we want to pass out Bibles. Hebrews 8 is on page 1005 in the Bibles that we're passing out. So 1005. Now, So I was thinking about this passage, it struck me that parts of the Bible are easier to understand than others. Can I hear an amen about that? Okay, so parts are easier than others. And uh, like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, that's not real, real hard. But there's other parts that are very hard to understand. And so the temptation, right, is to focus on the parts that are easy to understand and to neglect the parts that aren't. That would be a mistake. And here's one of the most important reasons why we do not want to neglect the parts that are harder to understand. It's because it's the Holy Spirit who has led the biblical authors to write every word that they wrote. So the Holy Spirit led the biblical authors to write the parts that are easy to understand. And the same Holy Spirit led the biblical writers to write the parts that are hard for us to understand. And so if we're going to honor the Holy Spirit's work in inspiring the Scriptures, if we're going to trust the Holy Spirit's work in giving us the Scriptures, we need to enjoy the easy parts, right? Let them be nurturing to us and strengthening us and pray over them, run to them when your cup's leaking. Okay, so use those easier-to-understand parts. But if we're going to honor and trust the Holy Spirit, let's also study the harder parts, because he has willed that we do that. Not that we pick and choose, but that we study, we think, we ponder, we learn, we wrestle. Now, you probably guess why I'm saying this. It's because this morning's passage is one of those difficult passages. All right? And it's not an easy passage. It's not so much that it's hard to understand what it's saying. It's that what it's saying raises so many questions. So if you have questions raised from this passage... Good. You should. If you don't, uh, I don't know what's going on. Maybe you just, anyway, maybe you should be preaching, whatever. Um, I've got tons of questions from this passage. And and this passage raises questions that are going to be much more um, involved than probably you'll be able to have answered on one Sunday morning. And we're good with that, okay? Holy Spirit chose to give us this passage. We're preaching through Hebrews. We didn't jump to chapter 9 this morning. We're going to stay right here, okay? And I think as I've pondered this passage this week and then over the, over the years, one of the impacts of 
thinking deeply about this passage is that we will see, here's what I'm praying, we will experience, that we will see more of God's glory, to be more blown away with who God is, that we will be more stunned at his mercy towards us, we'll see it more clearly, that we will be strengthened to turn to him even when our hearts feel completely unspiritual because we see his power to change our hearts, that's in this this morning, and that we will be emboldened in sharing the gospel with people. So those are some of the ways this could impact us. So let's dig in. Hebrews chapter 8. Now here's what's been going on through Hebrews so far. The author has been seeking to persuade us to keep clinging to Jesus Christ. Keep clinging to the truth of who he is. Keep clinging by faith in Jesus. Have you been clinging to Jesus Christ this past week? Have you been holding to him, trusting him, relying upon him? That's what he's urging us to do. And one of the reasons is because, and we've just seen this in the last couple chapters, Jesus is the perfect high priest. We all need a priest to come to God. We've sinned. We need to come through a priest. And Jesus is that priest. He is the perfect high priest. And so the author is giving us reasons so that we can see how he is the perfect high priest. That through Jesus Christ, we can come to God. Even though we've been sinful people, we can come through Jesus and be completely forgiven We can be encouraged. We can receive grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Jesus is that high priest. And so the author wants to persuade us. Keep clinging to Jesus. He is the high priest you need. And in the last chapter, he gave us one reason. It's because Jesus' priesthood is superior to the Old Testament priesthood. And then in this chapter, another reason. It's because Jesus' covenant is superior to the Old Testament. Old Testament covenant. So let's ask, how does Jesus' covenant compare to the Old Covenant? And look at what the author tells us in verses 6 and 7. He says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the Old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Okay, now notice, Jesus' ministry is more excellent than the Old Testament ministry because Jesus' covenant is better than the Old Covenant. And notice in verse 6, the exact words, the covenant Jesus mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So the new covenant promises, Jesus' new covenant promises are better than the old covenant promises. Or look at the language in verse 7. It says the first covenant was not faultless. So the first covenant and its promises are not without fault. There's there's some fault going on here. Now, it's not that God ever makes mistakes. God never makes mistakes. He didn't, like, start this first covenant and just say, uh, uh-oh. No, 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 no. God never says, uh-oh. Okay? Everything in the first covenant was part of God's purpose and plan. But what we see from verses 6 and 7 is that Jesus' covenant is without Fault. His covenant, his promises are without fault, while the old covenant and its promises had some fault. Okay, are you getting puzzled yet? All right. 
So what was the fault with the Old Testament covenant and its promises? This is very interesting. To answer that, the author of Hebrews quotes from the Old Testament. The Old Testament itself teaches what the fault is with the Old Covenant and its promises. And he does that by quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31. You can turn there sometime. Don't do it right now. Just this afternoon, turn to Jeremiah 31 and compare. Quote right there. Jeremiah wrote 500 years before Christ during the Old Testament time period. And so the author quotes from Jeremiah 31 to show what was the fault with the old covenant and its promises. So what was the fault? Read verses 8 and 9. For he, this isn't a quote yet, this is the author of Hebrews writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, for he, God, finds fault with them, Israel, when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, just a little pause here. Other passages show that this covenant with Israel and Judah is also a covenant he does with men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe, all the Gentiles included. Okay, so keep that in mind. But here he says, days are coming. So he's talking 500 B.C. Days are coming when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. This is a quote from the Old Testament. All right. So where did the fault lie with the Old Covenant and its promises? Read the first six words again of verse 8. For he finds fault with them. The fault with the Old Covenant and its promises was with Israel. That's where the faults lay. Now, in what way? Verse 9, they did not continue in my covenant. So here's the problem. In the Old Testament, the vast majority of Israel did not follow Yahweh. They did not follow the Old Testament covenant. The vast majority of Israel did not. Now, one question you might have is, well, wait a minute, didn't some, and absolutely, there was always a remnant, okay? But the vast majority did not, but there was always a remnant. Moses followed God's covenant. Hannah followed God's covenant. David followed God's covenant. Okay, there was always a remnant. The 700 who did not bow down to Baal, we read about in First and Second Kings, there was always a remnant. But the vast majority of Israel did not follow God's covenant, I want you to feel the tragedy of this. And one thing the author, Jeremiah and the author of Hebrews, and one of God's purposes for this is because he wants us to understand we are just like Israel. That would have been us had the new covenant not been put in place. We're no better. No anti-Semitism here. This is us if the new covenant hadn't come. So think of what Israel did and what we would do had we been in the exact same position. God had delivered Israel from Egypt. They were in slavery 400 years, hard labor, brutal conditions, cried out to God. God heard them and delivered them with mighty signs and wonders. You've read the story. I love the book of Exodus. Awesome power. Okay. 
He delivers them from Egypt. And so they know God exists. I mean, look, the Nile's turning into blood and locusts are coming and it's dark everywhere, but just where we live and just these amazing miracles. God exists. He is powerful and he cares about us. The God of the universe cares about us. And he calls them, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Love me with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And that's no like, you know, boring duty. The highest joy of the human heart is found in seeing and beholding God and his majesty and power and love and goodness. Seeing God fills you like nothing else does. So it's like he's calling us, thou shalt love ice cream with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's like, okay, exactly. And so here he gives them this call to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He gives them commands many of them which separate Israel culturally from the surrounding nations so they would be distinct so the other nations can look and say, look at how good God is to his people. I want in on that. He gave them the animal sacrifices as a picture of how their sins could be forgiven if they would trust God's mercy. And he promised that he would pour his heart-filling presence upon them as they would trust him, as they would obey his commands, he would pour his heart-filling presence upon them and lead them into a land flowing with milk and honey. What a covenant! What promises! This is amazing! But what happened? Well, we've just read. Israel, for the most part, the vast majority did what we all would have done had we been left to ourselves. We are sinful people. And Israel turned their backs on God. It's crucial to understand. To understand the Old Testament, you need to understand that the vast majority of Israel were not saved. Might that be a new thought for you, but... Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 32. This is page 661 in the Bibles we passed at. Jeremiah 32. Is that like halfway back? Uh, Yeah. Jeremiah 32. I want to read verses 30 to 32. So again, this is Old Testament. This is God speaking through Jeremiah, describing how much how many of the nation of Israel had sinned. It's the vast majority. Verse 30, for the children of Israel, you all got that, Jeremiah 32, 30 and 32, for the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. Devastating indictment. And that would be all of us had the new covenant not come into place. That's me. That's you. Okay? The children of Israel have done nothing, nothing, but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day, so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah 
that they did to provoke me to anger. Their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So what was the fault of the old covenant and its promises? The fault was with Israel. That's where the fault lies. Israel did not keep the old covenant. They did not continue in it. So that's the problem with the old covenant. Now, if that was the problem with the old covenant, that Israel didn't keep it, what does God do in the new covenant? How does God address that problem of people not keeping his covenants? How is the new covenant different? He mentions four ways, starting in verse 10. In the new covenant, I say to warn you, this might be a new thought for some of you. This might really be a tilt. And if it is, it's a good thing. Okay, tilts can be good. It's like a new thought. Okay. In the new covenant, God changes people's hearts. Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Now again, it's with Israel. Gentiles are included. Many of their passages make that clear. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. New covenant after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. See, if God left us to ourselves to do whatever we want, whatever we will, whatever we choose to do, we would all do exactly what Israel did when God left them to themselves to do whatever they wanted, willed, and chose to do. We'd all turn our backs on God day after day after day. This is the reality of the human condition. This is me. This is you. Crucial to understand this. So in the new covenant, God does something different. Like verse 10 says, he puts his laws into our minds. Didn't do that for the most part in the Old Testament. Moses, yes. David, yes. Hannah, yes. Sarah, yes. But not for the most part. He writes his laws on our hearts. Okay? And what that language means is that he changes our minds and transforms our hearts so that we turn to him. Left to ourselves, prone to wander. Lord, I feel like the old hymn says, right? That proneness is part of our sin nature. God changes hearts in the new covenant. Now let's get real specific. If you're trusting Jesus Christ today, I just kind of want to walk through what what he's done for you in the new covenant. Here's what's happened. You had a sinful heart, me too, okay, which would not turn to God. I was running, I was running from God. You were running from God too. You You might have run from God in socially acceptable ways or run from God in socially unacceptable ways, okay? But we were running from God. You might have gone to church every Sunday running from God. You can do that, you know, running from God. That's what we were all doing. Okay. And all we deserved because of our sin against God was God's judgment forever. So here's you, here's me, deserving only God's judgment forever because of our, our sin. This was, we, we chose to sin, we wanted to sin, we freely pursued sin. 
and we deserve judgment because of it. But God looked upon you as you were running from him, as you deserved only judgment, and he loved you. He cared about you. He had compassion upon you. You were still running. No! Stay away! Running! He loved you. Cared about you. Had compassion on you so much. He said, son, Jesus, son, would you go and suffer on the cross to pay for that rebel? Jesus said, for your glory, Father, yes. And Jesus came 2,000 years ago, and he suffered on the cross. You, you were still running. I was still running. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, Paul says in Romans, Christ died for us. Jesus suffered on the cross. You were still running. And, and because Jesus died and paid for your sins, then at some point in your life, this may have been one distinct point that you remember, or it may have been a gradual process, but at some point in your life, because of what Jesus did, God brought his power upon you. You were running, and he like grabbed you by the back of your collar. Stop! Reached into your mind, wrote his word on your mind, wrote his word on your heart. And it's like, oh, what was I pursuing? You are awesome. You are glorious. How can I be forgiven? Look at the cross. Jesus, yes. And so God reached down from heaven. Ezekiel uses language like he takes out the heart of stone and he gives a brand new heart of flesh and you were changed. God changed you when you were running from him. That's the new covenant. In the new covenant, God changes people's hearts. Now again, you might ask, didn't God do that for people in the Old Testament? And he did. For the remnant, okay? Moses, David, Hannah, Ruth, Abraham. But God allowed the majority to go their own way. And one of the reasons God did that, I already mentioned this, but one of the reasons God let the majority go their own way was so that we today could look and see that would be me if God hadn't changed my heart. So we can see just how sinful we were and how gracious God is. That was one of God's purposes for doing that. So one difference with the new covenant is that in the new covenant, God changes people's hearts. Is this stirring up any questions? Okay, good. It should, it should. Again, it's not that it's a hard passage to understand. It's just that it raises lots of questions maybe we haven't thought of before. Second difference, end of verse 10, in the new covenant, God is our people. I'm sorry, God is our God and we are his people. End of verse 10, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. See, that shows that when God puts his laws into our minds and writes his laws in our heart, the result is that we are changed and we then become his people and he is our God. That's the result. So because God changed your heart and you turned and you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you were forgiven for all of your sins and you were reconciled to God. And for that moment on, God was your God. And you are part of his people. Now, what does that mean? To have God as your God. It means that God is devoting all of who he is. All of his sovereignty, all of his goodness, all of his love, all of his power. 
He's devoting all of who he is to you, to bringing you into the greatest joy of knowing him. So he is 100% devoted to you, loving you, caring for you, guiding you, orchestrating every event in your life to bring you into the greatest joy of knowing him. He's going to give you all the wisdom you need. He's going to give you the jobs you need, great jobs, what, you know, lots of money, little money. He works it all out, okay, right? Could be lots, could be little, but it's all perfectly wisely crafted by him. He is your God. He's totally devoted to bringing you into the heart-satisfying joy of knowing him forever through Jesus Christ. He's your God. The God of the universe is 100% devoted to you. And then you are part of his people, which means you are devoted to him. To trust him, honor him, thank him, glorify him, obey him, follow him. He's our God. We're his people. And that comes because he's changed our hearts. Now again, in the Old Testament, were some of the Old Testament people part of God's people? And did some of the Old Testament people have God as their God? Absolutely, yes. The remnant always did, but the vast majority did not. God just let them tragically go their way. Third, in the New Covenant, we all know God. This doesn't mean that everyone in the world knows God in the New Covenant time period, but it means that everybody who's part of the New Covenant knows God. Look at verse 11. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Now here's some amazing news you could share with your neighbor or the person that you work with. Because of Jesus Christ, we can actually know God. This is is absolutely huge. He died to pay for our sins so God can change our hearts so we repent, trust him. And when we repent and we turn to God, we don't find nothing. When we repent and turn to God, we meet God. We know God. We can fellowship with God, interact with God, love God, have relationship with God. You meet God. Now, here's the question I want to just raise. Do you know God? Do you know God? You can go to church and not know God. You understand that, right? We want church to help you know God. That's why I say things like that to people that come to church, okay? You can go to church and not know God, but do you know God? New covenant, they will all know me. Do you know him? I mean, love you, Mercy Hill Church. Let me put it this way. Have you earnestly set everything else aside through Jesus Christ to seek God's face such that you know the living God? Now, we're not always feeling that the same way. There's ups and downs, right? Okay, leaking cups, like Ian said earlier, it's true. But do you have times where, God, you're here. I love you. Thank you for the new covenant. Thank you for Jesus. How long has it been since you have experienced the living God in such a powerful way that you said, like Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you I desire nothing on earth. (laughs) You are awesome. Knowing God, tell your neighbor this week in Sunday in church, did you realize that we could actually know, like really know God, not just know about him, but know him? Tell him that. Tell him how. Fourth, in the new covenant, we are completely forgiven. Verse 12, 
For I'll be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now again, the Old Testament, the remnant, were completely forgiven for their sins. They trusted God's mercy. They didn't see all the details of how God would do it. But they knew that God would do it, and he did it through Christ, as we'll see in next week's passage. But the vast majority of Old Testament Israel was not forgiven for their sins because they were turning their backs on God. They were burning their children to Moloch. They were making golden calves and bowing down to them. It's tragic. And that would have been us, too, if God hadn't changed your heart and changed mine. And here's the conclusion from verse 13 that the author comes. So verse 12 is the end of his quote from Jeremiah. And verse 13 now, the author of Hebrews brings his conclusion. Here's what he wanted to have us understand. In speaking of a new covenant, and and remember God did this in Jeremiah 31, 500 years before Christ. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the first covenant, obsolete, growing old, ready to vanish away. Because in 500 B.C., God promised to make a new covenant with Israel and with men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe. Pay for their sins through the cross of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus changing the hearts of those he's chosen to save. Changes our hearts, we turn back to him, we're forgiven. We know God. It's the new covenant. So there's the four differences with the new covenant. Now, that's how Jesus' covenant then is better than the old covenant. And Jesus' promises are better than the, than the old covenant promises. That's why. And so the author's point here is to help you understand, I see. I'm going to cling to Jesus. I'm going to cling to Jesus. What mercy. What love. What heart-changing power. I'm going to cling to Jesus. I'm going to turn to him when I'm feeling spiritual. I'm going to turn to him when I'm not. I'm clinging to Jesus. I love this new covenant. What a mercy from God. I'm clinging to Jesus Christ. That's where the author wants us to go with this. Okay, now let's, let's process this some by seeing what questions you might want to raise here. And, um, and then I've got a couple of application points and we're doing pretty well time-wise. So what what, what are some questions that this raises? Thank you. Yeah, let, me, let me make that really, really clear. So yes, here in this passage, he's talking about the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay. So he's talking about in this passage, but many other passages, and the author of Hebrews makes this really clear too, many other passages, Old Testament passages make it clear too, that this is inclusive of the Gentiles. Men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe are part of the new covenant. So please don't any Gentiles out there think, what about me in the new covenant, okay? It's for Jews and Gentiles, all right? I thought about that. Um, and a couple commentators I read as I raised that question, just so what, what exactly does that mean? And the commentator said, and this, this, I think this is probably right, okay? I mean, you can keep, this is one of those questions you've got you to ponder and think about. It's talking about, well, there's one of two possibilities. Some said this is referring to the completed new covenant people as they are in heaven, and they will know God face to face. So some commentators went that direction. 
The other commentator said it's talking about people who are already part of the new covenant. We're not evangelizing each other in the new covenant. We're encouraging each other, but we're not evangelizing each other anymore. So those were the two. That's kind of where the commentators lined up. So you can take your pick. I thought both of those made some sense. Let me explain it this way. Okay, This isn't going to answer all the questions, but at least it will give you some data points to wrestle with. We are sinful people. Left to our own free will, we will always run away from God. That's who we are. That's who we are. God can say, come. And he does say, come. Everybody, turn to me, all of you. I'm the Savior. So God does that. But because of our sinfulness, we're all running away. So if God had chosen to leave us to our own free wills, what would be happening still? We would all still be running away from him. That's just the reality of our sinfulness. Okay? That's what the Bible teaches. We would not, because of our sinfulness, the only way we could be saved is if God said, I'm going to change that person's will. I'm going to change that person's heart. And aren't you glad he did? Because if he wouldn't have done that, none of us would have been saved. Now that raises lots of questions. That raises more questions. Okay, you said, I thought you were going to answer the question, Steve. Well, that is the answer, and that raises lots of questions, probably the questions that are the most difficult to raise out of, of the Bible. But I see the Bible teaching two things very clearly. One is everyone... So you, Everyone is responsible and is able, if they wanted to, to choose God. The problem is they don't want to. Okay? So everybody's responsible. All right? That's one truth the Bible teaches very clearly. And the Bible also teaches that unless God changes our hearts, no one's going to want to. And he loves us so much that he would punish his own son for all of us as we're shaking our fists in his face, running away from him. And he said, son, would you die for them? And he said, yes. So that should raise lots more questions. Don't feel like, you know, if I was really godly, I'd just be nodding now and everything would be fine. Okay? Not necessarily. These are, these are weighty issues. And we're, we're committed here at Mercy Hill to, as best we can, to teach the Bible as it is and to let the questions rise and let's just be working on them. Okay? Like I said, I would not expect you to have all the questions that come from this passage to be answered this morning. I would doubt that that would happen. But I hope that some questions will be raised that you can ponder and process and study and, and talk together about in your home group and wrestle with with each other. Like starting with the new covenant. It's a good question. And the book of Galatians gives one answer. There may be others, but the, but the one that I thought of this week, and as again, remember, in the old covenant, the old covenant was beautiful. It was a, the promises were amazing. Land flowing with milk and honey, knowing God, right? And here he delivers them from Egypt. So the, the, the old covenant was, the flaw of the old covenant was not with the old covenant. The flaw of the old covenant was with the people. And the old covenant, God just let people go their own way. So people were running. They're doing what they wanted to do. Nothing wrong with God just to let people do what they want to do and who they are. Um, and so I think one of the reasons is because... God wanted us in the New Covenant to look from the look at the Old Testament and to learn that's how sinful we are. And that's where I would still be 
had God not brought his mercy upon me and changed my heart? So that, that's the answer. As I've wrestled with that question, that's resonated with me. It doesn't answer all the questions. That probably raises like, that might raise more questions than the one you originally asked. But that, that's the answer that Paul gives in Galatians for why the old covenant then. He says, why the law? Why the old covenant? You know, why did God do it that way? And, and that's the answer he gives in Galatians. Food for thought. Okay, let me move to the application points. And again, if you still have questions, that's a good thing, I think, probably. And so keep pondering them. We want to be a church that's learning the scriptures and that lets the hard questions arise and thinks and processes them and ponders them and doing all we can to let the word shape our thinking. Not have our thinking shape the word, but have the word shape our thinking. So that's why I'm content just to let questions, just to let them Blah, 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 you know, like soup's cooking, blah, 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 questions are like soup cooking. Anybody getting, don't get hungry yet, we're not quite ready. Anyway, so let me just share with you three implications that this has had in my life. One is it has shown me how merciful God is. Um, ask yourself the question, why, why are you saved? And the answer I think most of us would answer, which is a true answer, it's a beautiful answer, it's because you repented of your sins and you trusted in Jesus. That's absolutely right. And if you wouldn't have done that, you wouldn't be saved. But this passage and other passages press us a little deeper and ask the question, yes, but why did you believe and trust Christ? I didn't come up with that on my own. That was not from Steve Fuller. That was a gift from God. He looked at me as I was running from him in sin, in good kid sin, but in sin, and he changed my heart. And so what that means is I didn't even have the goodness in me to bring faith to the table. He needed to give me even that. And so truly there was no reason in me for God to show mercy to me. And he did. There was no reason in me for God to love me. But he did. I was completely unworthy and he cared for me and he cared for you. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. I once was blind, then was found. No, once was blind. How's that go? Yeah, you know how it goes anyway. So one implication of this is to let it humble you with your sinfulness and magnify God's mercy and love. Truly, unconditional. Christ was the condition that was paid, his death on the cross, so in that sense it was conditional, but you, completely undeserving, and he loved you. He loved you. So when you sin this coming week, okay, turn back to him. That's his heart. That's his arms. Wide open. That's one implication. See how merciful God is. A second implication is to seek God's heart-changing power. The new covenant is all about God's power to change your heart. Are you dealing with the sin that is overpowering you? Are you dealing with discouragement that is just devastating you? Are you feeling completely non-spiritual? You're saying the thing that isn't, isn't resonating with me, Pastor. I'm just like, nothing's happening. Okay, I've been there. We've all been there. What do you do? You turn to Jesus Christ and you say, help me. 
The new covenant is all about your power to write your laws on my heart. Put them in my mind. Change my heart now. And I, I promise you, I promise you, if you come before the Lord Jesus humbly and say, help me, change my heart, look at the truth of who he is in the word, you pray in time, he will transform your heart. And you'll see, you'll have power over that area of sin. The discouragement will lift. Your lukewarm heart will get like a burning bush, okay? All right, so seek God's heart-changing power. And then one last implication. Boldly share the gospel. How many of you know people whose hearts are hard towards God? Okay, I do. You do too, I'm sure you do. We all know people whose hearts are just like stone cold hard towards the Lord. And the danger is we can think of that and say, well, I'm not going to share the gospel with them because they're stone cold heart towards the Lord. But understand, the sharing of the gospel is the pipeline through which God brings his heart changing power. Okay? So to not share the gospel with somebody whose heart is stone cold saying like, well, you know, we shouldn't take this person for heart surgery because their heart's got a problem. No, because their heart is a problem, you take them to heart surgery. Stone cold hearts was all of us. And somebody shared the gospel and through the gospel, God brought his heart changing power. That's why you're trusting today. And so, again, don't ever argue with somebody who disagrees. We don't argue. We just humbly, lovingly, gently, clearly tell them about the love of Christ that God will forgive them through Christ. God will change their hearts. They will know God. They will have the fullness that they've been longing for all their lives through trusting Jesus Christ. So, And it could be that through your words, that may be the time that God chooses to use your sharing the gospel to change their heart. You could see this person change before your very eyes. So boldly, boldly share the gospel with everybody. And you will see miracles before your eyes. Hearts changing in front of you. Let's stand together. I want to pray this over us. Thank you, Father, for the new covenant that you didn't just let us keep running away, but you sent Jesus your own son, and you punished him in our place so that you could bring your power upon us, change our hearts, and we would turn back to you. Amazing love. Beautiful grace and compassion. I pray, Lord, you'd help us with our questions. Lots of questions arise from this. Help us as we think these things through. Give us wisdom as you promised to do, I pray. I pray that you would humble us in our sinful because of our sinfulness and magnify your mercy i pray that we would be encouraged to turn to you when our hearts feel a million miles from you and i pray that we would be bold to share the gospel and that you would pour out your power and we would see miracles of new creation taking place before our very eyes and i ask this in jesus name amen